Nick Spencer has come and gone from the pages of Amazing Spider-Man, but did he leave behind a legacy of yay or a legacy of nay? Let's find out. The byword starts now. Ladies and gentle people, welcome back to a brand new episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. This week, our big talk is focused on the legacy of Nick Spencer on Amazing Spider-Man. As his run has now come to a close, what is our final take on his time spent with the wall crawler? But first, as always, it's time for... Chris, what's new? Well, it seems we're going to be super Spidey-centric. Love that alliteration for me. Uh, This episode. So, um, without further ado... Yeah. Without further ado, it looks... uh, Tom Holland is hinting that No Way Home may be his final portrayal of uh, Peter Parker. Uh, He said in a recent interview, quote... We are all treat. We were all treating No Way Home as the end of a franchise. Let's say, I think if we were lucky enough to dive into these characters again, you'd be seeing a very different version. I would no longer be. It would no longer be the Homecoming trilogy. We would give it some time and try to build something different and tonally change the films. Whether that happens or not, I don't know. But we were different. Definitely treating No Way Home like it was coming to an end, and it felt like it. End quote. So, uh, of course, people were running wild with this and speculation. Um, I think, you know, just keeping it all out there, like, I think this is a natural thing to say, like, whether or not it's planned. Who knows with the partnership between Sony and Marvel Studios, how that's going to shake out. Um, You have, you know, Venom now with that tire fire that we're not even going to review because it was so bad. Um and, and the end credit scene there, like who knows where the character of Spider-Man is going to go from here. Do I want to see Holland back in the role? Absolutely. Um, I, I shudder to think of another reboot. Like, please don't do that to me. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking just my gut reaction to this is the MCU trilogy that the home part is is done and over with and then like if we get another spider-man film it will probably be holland at the center if everything works out and then it'll just go in a different direction that is exclusively within sony that's just my gut reaction dave what do you think (sighs) it's very hard for me to even have this discussion with you right now chris because you know obviously we've not seen far from home yet And we don't know where this leaves the character or whether the rumors of sort of this being a multiverse experience are even true. If we're going to see, you know, Tobey Maguire, you know, reprise his role, Andrew Garfield reprise his role. I think 
you know, this opens up certain avenues to discuss, which is that if this is a multiverse movie and Tom Holland, you know, takes a break a little while and decides to maybe bring the character back differently, as he's implied, with a different tone and approach at a later time, if there's not a a possibility for Sony to go back to the well and give us an older Spider-Man with a, you know, Tobey Maguire Spider-Man 4 or a Andrew Garfield Spider-Man 3 or, you know, the the buddy cop movie that you didn't know you wanted with Toby and Andrew together in a movie trying to make their way back home. Like, there are possibilities there of having Spider-Man movies, as I think Into the Spider-Verse very clearly has demonstrated, that don't necessarily require Tom Holland's Spider-Man and we could still have a, a Spider-Man or Spider-Men uh, to enjoy on the big screen. So how do I feel about this in the long run? I really don't know yet. It depends on where we leave Tom Holland's version of the character at the end of this trilogy um, and, and what Sony may or may not do moving forward, continuing a partnership with Marvel Studios or striking back out on their own. This is all anybody's guess right now. It's one of the most complicated and convoluted situations in Hollywood, I think, right now. Um, and so I'm just going to kick back, relax, and enjoy the show right now. I just want to see Far From Home and see how it turned out um, and then just take it from there. Yeah, <clears throat> and this has been a constant thread for the last couple of weeks, but I'm going to flip on manifest mode and and just say that um, Miles Morales went because I, I we've been petered to death um, with all of this news. And you may want to rephrase that, Chris. <laughs> we we've been hit with Peter Parker in the face um, so many times. <laughs> and <He's> still great. <laughs> Um, I, I just really, I think even, and we'll detail this in our, our byword big talk here in a few moments, but like for me, the, the more enjoyable reading experience when it comes to, to spider comics has been the Miles Morales book. Like it's, it's, it's tight. It, it, it sticks to its core of, of what you love about the character of Spider-Man and, Peter Parker is my favorite superhero of all time, but I'm just, it's just much more fun. And I like pressing forward. And this is, you know, something that we'll get into with our discussion, but like, I, I really think that it's time to to shift a little bit and we're just running in circles with Peter, Peter, Peter. <laughs> I tripled down on that one. Yeah, you really did, Chris. And, um, I have to ask you, does this mean that you feel that uh, Peter is overexposed, has been exposed a few times too often? Well, have you seen that panel with him standing next to Captain America? That That's some pretty overexposure. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I guess the character has petered out on the big screen a little bit. <laughs> You know, I, I'm, I would be totally good with having, you know, a live action Miles Morales movie. Um Although I'm also going to freely admit that it's going to be a big challenge to make a live action Miles Morales movie as good as Into the Spider-Verse was. Nothing, nothing um, will get there. Nothing. That yeah, is a it's, it's, I totally agree. And, and just a great, great take on that character, period. So, um, you know, if they decide to tackle that, you know, best of luck, guys. Like, seriously, you know, you, you, you've got, I don't know, big web shooters to fill. Um I'm not. I'm not going back down to Peter Road. I just want you to know that I'm done with that. I'm. I'm cutting that off. <laughs> okay, uh, let's let's flip from my favorite to yours. What's what's your news story this week? 
Man, Mark Wade is back at DC, and I love me some Mark Wade writing. Like I really do. That that guy pops up on something, and you can always expect some really good stuff. And he's right away back on one of my all-time favorite characters, which is Superman. So he is going to be working with Dan Mora uh, on a Batman and Superman project. It's untitled right now, but it's got sort of a the nickname world's finest uh, in the concept art. And it's supposed to be a backup story uh, in the pages of detective comics beginning in uh, January 25th, uh, detective comics, 1050 set to release on January 25th. And I have to say on the strength of um, Mark Waits writing alone and this beautiful, beautiful Dan Moore concept art, I'm already totally here for this. Like, I cannot wait. Uh, there is a fantastic classic take uh, on a Superman suit, and he's, you know, standing in the in the concept art with this giant grin on his face, this perfect, warm, classic Superman, exactly the way I love the character represented. And then even the Batman interpretation visually, I mean, we're back to the blue boots, cowl, and cape, and the, the bat in the yellow oval, which I absolutely love that suit. Always have loved the blue in the cape and in the mask and in the boots and in the gloves. Like it, this just really pops. There's something about it that just really pops. So the art is gorgeous. And Mark Waite gets Superman. I mean, his uh, maxi series Birthright is still one of my all-time favorite takes on Superman. So I'm actually more excited at this point about the backup in Detective Comics than I am about the main story. Like, I, give me this. I just want to buy this. Uh, it's very, very exciting to see Mark Wade doing work at DC again because he's just, especially on Superman, he's just such a fantastic writer, Chris. So I'm very excited for this. <clears throat> and and I'm a huge Mark Wade fan. I love um, when he was writing uh, Spider-Man. Um, with the brand new day era of comics. Um, I love, I, uh, history of the Marvel universe between, and it was my, I think it was my second ever nerd commendation, uh, with the art from Javier Rodriguez. Like it is one of my favorite things, favorite comic projects over the past couple of years. It's just, I mean, between the gorgeous, uh, art, from Rodriguez and then you know his his script is just it's just one of my favorite things ever I'm telling you this this art right here by Dan Mora like this is just absolutely breathtaking uh and I saw someone uh on Twitter say that I'm okay with this bat costume being the one the the permanent one from here on out and I totally agree um, I'm telling you what, with the, the, the solicits that we've had over the past couple of days with DC, uh, I know this is going to air in about a week, but um, with with Teeny Howard coming over to the Catwoman book, I've heard great things about the Rom V um, run, but uh, there's a lot of stuff that's coming out with DC that I'm super excited about. And uh, I'm, 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 I'm not jumping ship per se, but I'm taking a ferry at least, man. There's a lot of stuff at DC to be excited about. Yeah, I'll totally echo that. DC is doing pretty well right now. Let's hope they can keep, you know, this momentum going because qualitatively, uh, a lot of their stuff is definitely trending in the right direction. All right, that's it for Nerd News. Stick around after the break as we discuss the culmination of Nick Spencer's grand plan on Amazing Spider-Man. Was it worth the time and energy we put into the Kindred storyline 
or was it just a giant floppy turd? Let's find out. Sup everyone, Brian here, host of TV Trivia Pod, the podcast about TV trivia. Tune in and answer questions from your favorite shows, like The Office. For example, what's the name of Jan's Candle Company? What are the three themed rooms at Dwight's Bed and Breakfast? And what does Kevin say is the trick in making his famous chili? I'll be finishing The Office soon and moving on to Harry Potter and Marvel trivia after that. So check out TV Trivia Pod, play along, and listen anywhere you get podcasts. And as always, stay tuned for more trivia! All right, ladies and gentle nerds, we're back, and it's time for everybody's second favorite segment. Here we are, the big talk. Now, I have to admit, Chris had to talk me into this one a little bit, uh, Mr. Spider-Man himself over there. Uh, we are actually going to sit down and have a little bit of a post-mortem, so to speak, for Nick Spencer's run on Amazing Spider-Man. I did, in fact, read the whole thing, uh, although I read it very, very quickly um, over a series of a couple of months rather than, you know, several years um, and we're going to go ahead and discuss the good, the bad, and ultimately uh, what is our final verdict on this run now that it has come to an end. So, Chris, what do you think has worked in Nick Spencer's Amazing Spider-Man? Give me something. All right. So <clears throat> this is going to be very similar to our film reviews. We're going to go three things that went what went right each and then three things what could have been better. And then one final thing of where we're headed. Um, so the first thing that went right for me were the kindred teases. And I know that um, I'm famously a big chicken when it comes to horror, but like right from the jump at the, the tail end of the first issue was absolutely terrifying, but in a good way that was like this new villain. Um, and then where the, uh, kindred would pop up, you know, time after um, time and, and just like this whole spellbinding, like, long running thread of the tease was, was absolutely kept me running back issue after issue to get more. So that part worked for me now um, where it ultimately ended up. We'll get to in a moment, but that part I did enjoy the kindred teases. Yeah. I think, you know, there were a lot of complaints, particularly on social media because, Hey, you know, that's where everybody goes to complain anyways, these days. Um, about how long the storyline was taking to come to fruition. But, you know, having long-running subplots and threads going through several years of stories is kind of a hallmark of Amazing Spider-Man in a lot of ways. And so I thought this worked incredibly well. Uh, Kindred is a, visually a very interesting villain. And the continued hints that he had some kind of um, connection uh, to Peter uh, was very interesting. So, and how often do we get, you know, new villains right. on Amazing Spider-Man that so strongly captivate the reader? Like, you know, right out of the gate, this was a very interesting new villain that we wanted to know more about, which is why for some people, the wait became a little long, I guess. But yeah, I mean, fascinating. Absolutely. I agree. All right, Dave. Um, this is from what I've seen, one of the most 
consensus points of of a claim. What is your first uh, what went right thing? Oh, Boomerang, absolutely. You can tell that Nick Spencer had a huge soft spot for that character. Um, everything about the character in this series worked. His his very sort of back-and-forth weird little friendship rivalry that he had going with Peter Parker Spider-Man, the fact that they ended up as roommates, uh, you know, his, his slow development towards something a little bit more heroic, then his betrayals of Spider-Man, like his whole arc was incredibly fascinating. Now, where it ultimately ended up, again, much like the Kindred stuff, um, we'll, we'll have to talk about. But I think the overall arc of Boomerang as a supporting character in this book was solid. And you could really tell this, this was probably Nick Spencer's favorite character in the book, probably even more so than Spider-Man himself. He really, really liked to include Boomerang in the sucker. Yeah. And this, for those of you that may not be aware, um, Spencer way, 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 way before this series wrote um, the superior foes of Spider-Man of which Boomerang was one of them. It's a very uh, highly praised um, series about just like fun offbeat type of interactions between these C list D list villains. And, and so that, that, um, kind of lent itself like leading into Spencer taking over the main title that a lot of people were excited about because of this. So yeah, I absolutely agree. It was just like this, almost like a lethal weapon kind of feel, uh, without the age gap, but like, uh, this reluctant buddy cop type of situation where they would find themselves in these kinds of hijinks. That was a lot of fun. All right, Chris, what else do you think just went right in Nick Spencer's run? Uh, so this one might be a bit of a hot take, but I enjoyed some of the retcons, uh, that took place. Um, particularly the, the one that I enjoyed that made the most sense to me, was uh, and full spoilers um, for you know all of this this volume of Amazing Spider-Man, um, but the particular idea that um, Norman would sell his own firstborn child to the to Mephisto would sell his child to the devil that just shows you how deep down awful Norman Osborn is, and it makes so uh, so much sense now. Um, Famously, they also retconned uh, the sins past or sins revisited or whatever all that garbage was. Uh, the whole uh, Norman and Gwen thing. Yeah. So like, thank God that was retconned. Um, so like, that's kind of like um, a, a contentious one because let's just not even talk about it ever again. But at the same time, I'm glad that it was retconned uh, as a whole because uh that was seriously, it, it, I think for me, even more so than One More Day, it's the most troubling thing of um, of Spider-Man's history. And, you know, I'm not the number one fan of 616 Gwen Stacy, but the character assassination there was just, I mean, just out of this world. So I'm going to be completely honest here. As far as retcons go, I'm usually not a big fan. However, um I think it's pretty clear that what they did to Gwen Stacy in the 616 was pretty much atrocious with the whole since past, since revisited thing. I almost feel like there would have been a better way to retcon this sucker, uh, you know, than literally having to revisit since revisited, ha ha ha. Um, but on the other hand, I am glad that they straightened that out once and for all, although I'm still not entirely sure how they got Norman thinking 
that he slept with Gwen Stacy, like hallucinogenic gas. So what he was just like rolling around, making weird noises on his couch or something. It's just the whole, the whole thing is, 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 it's very odd. Um, we are really in our bag this episode, let me tell you. Well, apparently, uh, so was Norman. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I just man. imagine him. I just imagine him with that doll from the office that that blow up doll. So, oh my god, oh my god, I'm gonna need therapy. Thanks for that. Um, look, all I know for sure is this: that the Gwen Stacy stuff was pretty atrocious when first published. And so the fact that we got rid of that is no doubt a good thing. And some of the stuff they said about Norman uh, is, is certainly within character, the whole, you know, selling his son's soul to, to Mephisto and all that. That's all within character. And I don't think it's necessarily that far out of the left field for, you know, our, our favorite cornrow wearing dude. Like I still never figured out that hairstyle. Um, anyways, <sighs> I don't know if this was necessarily the best way to fix those things, you know, with this massive, you know, epic run of Spider-Man that literally just feels like ultimately when you reach the conclusion, it was just designed to basically be uh, the equivalent of Marvel Studios calling housekeeping to, you know, sweep out some of the dirt. Um, but I, on the other hand, I am glad that they occurred. So I'll concur on that, Chris. Oh, I, I got it. I, I, I think I've got it for you, Dave. Uh, Norman Osborn is the Rachel Dolezal of the Marvel Universe. Okay, that I, I, I'm just moving on. I'm just moving on. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm done on that one. All right. So, um, you know, this is a podcast. And uh, speaking of podcast, uh, what's your next uh, point that what went right for you? What went right for me is the whole... Uh, J. Jonah Jameson Spidey dynamic. You know, really, we have had decades of J. Jonah Jameson sort of, um, you know, being a thorn in Spidey's side. There's a moment in uh, Brian Michael Bendis' Ultimate Spider-Man that I always really appreciated. Oh, I hope you were going to reference this. It's one of my favorite things ever. Yeah, so, you know, the, the whole notion of um, when when Spidey you know dies when Peter Parker dies in that universe and he sort of realizes um, who Peter was and what Peter was trying to do and sort of it, you know the error of his ways click into place. To me, um, Ultimate uh, Triple J was always the most complex and interesting version of the character. Um, but, you know, I think 616 is, it comes in a close second there. And so taking this dynamic and flipping it on its head and having 616, Jameson, literally trying to be Spidey's best friend and, and failing miserably at being, you know, support for him in some ways and making things worse and many others um, is an absolutely wonderful take on their dynamic. The whole... Um, podcast episode where they're sitting down and just talking that whole that whole issue had me in stitches because even when they're on the same side even when they get along they bicker uh, and it's just so much fun to read Um, so I think the whole dynamic that they established between Jameson and Spidey here was a a thing of beauty and and you know kudos to, to Spencer for doing this this really fun inversion. Um, I, I think it absolutely worked. Yeah, I absolutely love it. Um, and the, the, while ultimatum as a whole was absolute, 
uh, tire fire. Uh, we've 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 chronicled that uh, to a, a great extent here before. But um, the, the one of the things that was gotten right, and it was in the issues of Ultimate Spider-Man, of like the side by side of Peter saving um, people during the flood, and then you have. Um, Jameson pecking away at his typewriter or computer or something. It's been several years, but like just that parallel was just fantastic. And, and, and I just always found ultimate um, JJJ as like much more grounded and realistic and believable. And I always thought 616 was 616 was a little bit over the top caricature but I, I really loved what uh, Spencer was able to do with this is like, you know, even as an ally, he is a great hindrance to him. Yeah, yeah, it, it just it really worked on a whole bunch of different levels. All right, Chris, you have one more for something that absolutely worked in Spencer's run. Uh, it's freaking MJ. Like, thank God, after all the hemming and hawing and keeping them apart for reasons um, with 10 years of the Dan Slott era, um, finally, we can just have them back together again. And whether that is with a marriage certificate or not, who cares? Um, so I'm just glad that she is back in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man because that is probably my biggest bone to pick with the slot era is even if they're not going to be together, taking MJ away from that book um, and the dynamic character. And like, she's such a strong individual, like, and I don't know if like, there's something underlying in that of like, just because they are not together, that she would just completely be out of his life. And that was something that was sorely missing from the slot era run. And I'm so glad that she's back. Yeah, I will totally second that. MJ is such an important character uh, to the world of Spider-Man and to not have her present or to try to remove her for long periods of time always ultimately uh, does a disservice to Spider-Man's story. So yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled that she's really back as well. Um, here's hoping that sticks. Um, I know yeah, you said... <laughs> I know you said here, you know, marriage certificate or not doesn't matter, but I will freely admit it does to me. Uh, I think that's one of the weaknesses, actually, of this run in that it very much te uh, telegraphed that it was going to do one thing and didn't do it. Uh, but we can talk about that uh, when it comes to the misfires. But I'll wholeheartedly agree MJ's back where she belongs, which is in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man. All right, Dave, we got one more. What went right? What you got? Yeah, so how about we just talk about the art for a second? Because even when Spencer's um, writing was a little bit uneven, I would say that the rotation of artists on this title has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, visually speaking, amazing, looked great. Um, amazing, you could say. Uh, and let's not even mince any words here. The addition of Patrick Gleason uh, towards the latter part of the run was incredibly important to Amazing Spider-Man and the fact that he's still around as you know Spider-Man enters this new era right now is a testament to that um everything Gleason touched on this book just turned to gold so even when the story didn't quite live up to expectations the art always did for me yeah I wholeheartedly agree with that I mean this is almost like going from one Hall of Fame quarterback to another like 
going from Joe Montana to Steve Young. This is going from Ryan Otley to Patrick Gleason. I mean, like the rich get richer. Like I, I, it was, it was by far and away my favorite thing from this entire run. Like not even close. It was the art, uh, particularly the, um, uh, the kindred, uh, pieces that that Gleason drew were absolutely terrifying in the best possible way. Yeah, so can't really complain about the art in any way, shape, or form here. Just good stuff all around. Let's talk about stuff that's not so good all around, Chris. What could have been better? Uh, the Sin Eater made absolutely no sense to me. Um, the shotgun, the holy shotgun of removing all of your sins. Batman. Sorry, wrong book. Yeah. Um, so, like, it ultimately, like, for me, it, like, led absolutely nowhere. And just the idea of removing all the sins from Norman Osborn, uh, quite possibly the most sinister character in all of comics, like, one of the most, like, evil, evil characters, and just removing them of all their sins, uh, I, I was not a fan of. Yeah, you know, that, that that character was just weird to me as well. And the concept was weird to me as well. Um, and I know there was a lot of talk of, um, you know, sins in this particular run. Spider-Man sins, Norman sins, Harry sins, everybody's sinning. Um, so bringing in this character, the Sin Eater, made sense to a certain extent, obviously. Uh, never quite never quite understood some of the, the the connections there though like when we when we you know take the finale how everything ended up and we kind of work backwards from that what was the point of removing norman's sins how did that fit into the master plan did you ever actually understand that chris because i must have missed something there no i did not um and and in a lot of respects it felt like um you know when you lose the remote control and like you get stuck on a channel i felt like we were stuck on a bad televangelist program and i couldn't change the channel oh no not the 700 club <laughs> <laughs> okay okay i just <laughs> I jest, I jest. Probably. Um, so yeah, yeah. I understand where you're coming from with the Sin Eater thing. I really didn't enjoy it either. Um, so, Dave, you have a multifaceted point coming up, and I'm excited to hear your thoughts on it. You know, I think there was a lot of... Um, we were talking about how, how you know, the MCU was kind of petered out. Well, I will say that there's a lot of dangling stuff going on in this whole uh, run on Amazing Spider-Man. Um, there's so many missed opportunities and, and threads that I don't think ever really um, are resolved very well. And even if they're resolved, they're not really resolved satisfactorily, I guess. Like, at one point, they do this really neat thing where they have this, you know, here, here's Spencer with a cool concept, you know. So here is a support group for people who, you know, live with or, you know, have in their lives a costume superhero. And that is almost immediately just dropped, like that whole thing just vanishes into the ether. And that support group, that idea is fascinating and would have yielded some probably really fascinating stories. But here is just a, th a throwaway thing that then immediately gets swallowed up into, into nothingness. Um, what in the world happened to Carly Cooper um, is, is, is another uh, excellent uh, question here. Like she uh, pops up, vanishes, gets locked up for a little while. 
Um, and then, like the last time we see her in this run, she's standing next to Harry, uh, or clone Harry, as it turns out, who jumps on a glider and flies off. And that's it. Like, we never see her again. Like, what's her reaction? You know, what, what what's going on with her? What's her status now in this? No idea. Um, how about, you know, uh, the the roommate's pet, what, Gog? Like, what, what did I miss a page where they explained what happened to him? Like, did I just, like, have two pages that were, like, misprinted or something? <laughs> because I have no idea what, what what's going on with, with, with Gog here. And that was, I, I should have really listed uh, Gog as one of the strengths. Like, I like the idea of this pet that, you know, can go haywire at a moment's notice. Um, living with Spider-Man. Like, that is such a Spider-Man thing. I have to have something, but it also has to be super dangerous, but cute, and it's going to cause me a lot of problems. Like, that makes perfect Spider-Man sense. But then, like, you invest in this in this character, and then, poof, character gone. Um, and even the boomerang thing. Like, I understand arc complete. He tended towards the heroic. He tried to save Spider-Man, and then what? He dies, right? So... But but it happened in such a quick throwaway fashion that it's almost hard for me to believe that Spencer wrote that ending for Boomerang since he loves this character so much. Like there is no no real reflection of France from Spider-Man, like, oh my my roommate and my buddy, I thought he betrayed me, but he you know, he he died for me, blah blah blah. Like nothing. Like it just kind of poof, there it goes. So there's so many dangling threads and missed opportunities in this run. It's, it's dissatisfactory because of that nothing gets wrapped up in a neat bow it seems yeah um with the collective marvel comic internet fandom losing their minds and melting their faces over jeff the land shark which is a character that i adore he's cute and everything uh i would raise gog i loved gog and i want a pet avengers with jeff with gog with lockjaw as like their captain commander with amazing baby from the x books like i i loved gog and to see that go absolutely nowhere ultimately was was incredibly frustrating and and so everything that you just laid out kind of ties into my next point so um but yeah it was just extremely underwhelming and disappointing um so yeah like they couldn't even bring Gog back out just to like help with the Sinister War and just like sweep a bunch of people away or something. Like even something like that would have helped a little bit. I just, I'm going to go on a rant. Why don't you go ahead, Chris, and tell me what your second uh, thing is that could have been better? Well, and it, like I said, it's kind of tied in with yours. Um, and the, for most of the portions of this entire run, I felt like it was Nick Spencer trying to show off and flex his spidey historian muscles pulling the most obscure characters out of the toy box uh gog remember the character that this no-kill superhero killed well he actually didn't die and here he is and then what and you know like here is the death of gene DeWolf. here is the sin eater back and then what uh, so like, it, it just felt like, you know, when you have to tie something up or you have to tape something and you pull out way too much tape and like, Oh God, now what do I do with this? So he, he was tying himself up when all these threads that he created and all the execution. So like 
what what got me hooked on the Spencer run to begin with was like the anticipation, the anticipation, and then the execution, the third act, if you will, the climax and the execution and the landing was so underwhelming. And so just tying yourself up in threads that you yourself pulled away from the tape dispenser and now you're just tangled. Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Um, and, you know, as somebody who has not read literally every Spider-Man comic book ever, like I still have some gaps in my in my 616 knowledge. Like the whole Gog thing, didn't know who that character was. Um, worked for me without knowing that too. So although Spencer was sort of flexing his uh, spidey historian muscle, I don't think it necessarily even mattered to the, the regular readers who may have not been well-versed in every single little nuance of Peter Parker's history. So what are you going to say? All right, Dave, I'm really interested um, to see your final point because there's a lot of factors that are contributing to this one, I think. Uh, I, we really need to talk about the Mephisto in the room. Um, I, I Look, it was very clear, um, or at least it seemed very clear to fans when Spencer's run was kicking into gear that when they constantly were referring to, you know, hell and sins and all that stuff, that there was some Mephisto stuff going on. And if you introduce the notion that Mephisto is involved, then that automatically brings us to one more day. And when you deal with one more day, you're dealing with a lot of complex emotions among Spidey fans because uh, it was the end of an era. It killed Spider-Man's marriage to Mary Jane. It's a very, very unpopular story. Um, And I don't think it is an exaggeration to say that most Spidey fans would have uh, punch the air in complete ecstasy if this sucker would have been wiped away. And then lo and behold, as the story continues, Mephisto actually pops up. Then Doctor Strange pops up and implies that there's something wrong with Peter that involves Mephisto. Then Doctor Strange descends to, you know, Hell Casino uh, to have a sit down with Mephisto. And at that point, it just seems very clear. I mean, it's telegraphed. The reason that there's a stain on Peter's soul or whatever is because of his deal with Mephisto, and the only way to fix the problem is to remove the deal. And then they don't. They go in a completely different direction. Uh, And suddenly it's about Harry Osborn's soul, and it's not about Peter's sins. The whole sin line, that was all a bunch of crap. And the the whole thing... um, just completely swerves in a different way to such an extent, despite everything that has been telegraphed, that if this was if this was Spencer's initial plan, is that this is where the series was going to end up, then I have to say he was doing some very cruel toying with big fans of the Spider Marriage. Um, so I think in in a lot of ways once you bring in Mephisto and you don't address the elephant in the room, you are making as big a mistake as all the stuff that Spencer was trying to fix and retcon. Um, And although they kind of hint at the fact, you know, that, hey, uh, he's been messing with Spider-Man because him or maybe his daughter would eventually take Mephisto down, it still does not address the elephant in the room, which is the deal, which is one more day. Um, 
And if you're going to drop that many hints that you are going to address it, you better darn well address it or your readers are just not going to be happy. They're going to feel tricked and let down. And that's and that's ultimately what happened. I mean, like the the majority of the Spider-Man fandom is frustrated with all of this. And it, it's the bait and switch of it all. I mean, like just leading up to this and then like that, that's what you're going to end it with. And, you know, and, and we'll get into this in our, our next few points. But like, I really feel like um, that clip from America's Next Top Model of, of Tyra Banks saying we're like, we, I was rooting for you. We were all rooting for you. And I've, you know, put myself out there as like a defender of this run for so many parts. And like, in particular, like the last few, you know, issues of this were just like, like, what the hell? Pun intended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I, the pun should totally be intended because that was my exclamation as well. Um, and I don't know what to think here. I don't know if this was Spencer's, you know, ultimate goal or if this is editorial interference and he wanted to get rid of, you know, wanted to retcon one more day as well and wanted to bring the marriage back and ultimately was overruled. I have no idea. But the way it all shook out was extremely unsatisfying all right chris final thing that could have been better what you got okay so for me um what overall what i appreciated about this run is that it moved a lot of things forward my biggest nitpick of the slot era run was like it was a bunch of noise and and just kind of kept circling back like with Spider Island, we got hinted that like, oh, there's still this bond between Peter and MJ. And then it's never followed up again. And then an issue, I think it's like 794, 795. It's like, oh, they kiss. But then nothing really comes of that. And then, you know, so like I thought that it was was pushing forward and we're doing something new. And, you know, that I'm famously I like going forward and never backward. I don't like regressing. I'm not a huge fan of nostalgia. I like going forward and having new things. And that's not the easiest thing to do with a character who's been around since 1962, for Pete's sake. You know, we're coming up on 60 years of this character in publication. It's not the easiest thing to do. So I was really hopeful at the beginning that we were going in a new direction and telling new stories. But then, you know, I come back and I zoom out and I look at the end result. We didn't really go very far. Um, and you can you can see that in in something we'll get to in a few moments with with the the new issues that Zeb Wells and company have written. They basically kind of just brush aside everything that happened in this three year run. And when you can brush aside three years of publication um, with a throwaway statement or maybe a footnote, that is not a very glowing review of your work. And I feel like what you're saying here is tying uh, uh, directly into my final point as well. Um, so with your permission, Chris, I'm just going to go ahead Let's and yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, hit that as well. And that is that the ending uh, is ultimately lackluster to me. Um, the, the final storyline, the whole Sinister War stuff was so decompressed and drawn out and despite the fact that it was so decompressed and so drawn out, it also didn't feel like it was amounting to anything. Like you have all this space and all we get is like this never ending fight scene that is being narrated by Kindred, which by the way, I have to ask now that we know that Kindred was really two Kindreds, which one was doing all that excessive narrating? 
Like, I just want to know which one couldn't shut up because there was a lot of kindred narration in this run. I just want to know which kindred just could not shut up. Um, so you are exactly right. It, it feels like it ultimately amounted to nothing. You know, what has really changed in Spidey's world at this point as we launch into this new direction? Um, ultimately, uh, he's he's back together with MJ. But he was back together with MJ very early on uh, in this run already. So I wouldn't say this is the ultimate effect of this run. Um, and, you know, I even thought, like, the Sinister War would be, like, the thing that that puts, you know, Peter in the hospital in the solicits for this new direction. But even that didn't happen. Like, they basically just hit the reset button and moved on because it was, well, it was easy to do. So, um Man, Spencer, for all the neat things that he did with this run, is he just did not stick the landing. And I think, you know, when when you mess up the ending, a lot of your work is going to be judged by how you wrap things up. And and that's, I think, why a lot of fans are dissatisfied with his run on Spider-Man. It's because he just did not stick the landing in any way, shape, or form. And one of the things, you know, as historians... Um, and and fans of history that we like to do is to bring context into the situation and like do research and like how does that impact um you know our perspectives our views on events and we would be remiss to talk about this entire run on this entire episode and not talk about the fact that nick spencer basically not had just one foot out the door he had two feet out the door with this whole substack thing and that when you bring that context into it, all of this makes sense. Of course you didn't stick the landing because all of you've already moved all of your stuff out of the apartment. Like it makes so much sense that none of this would be a satisfying ending because you're not really putting your heart into it that you were at the beginning. So of course it doesn't make sense in the end because of course you're mailing it in. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, And ultimately um, it, it's just a, a shame because the run started so very strong and had some very, very good moments, particularly early on. Okay, so Dave, one thing before we head into the final um, segment of this, we had a very different reading experience. I read this weekly coming out, um, and that was another big nitpick of a lot of fans who were reading week to week to week. You binge read most of this. So how do you think that played differently with your experience? You know, I think that I had probably a better experience overall, particularly because, you know, the kindred mystery didn't drag on for me for, you know, years. It, you know, dragged on for maybe four or five months or so. So, um, I can understand how dragging that out over years would have been an extremely frustrating experience. I will say that even when you put all of it together and read it in a much faster way, there is still a market change in um, in quality of the writing, I think, after the Hunted storyline. Things just kind of start becoming much more hit and miss rather than going from strength to strength. Yeah, and I totally agree with that. Now, for me, reading it week to week, I wasn't as disheartened or frustrated um, as other readers may have been because I'm reading so many other books. So I, I could understand if like if this is the one thing that's on your pull list, if you're a spider-centric reader, um, you know, I could see where that would be frustrating. But for me, you know, especially with all of the X books, all of the Krakoa and Arako content that I'm getting, 
it was just like, oh yeah, let me catch this one episode of this show that just happens to be checking in this week. So I wasn't as frustrated that I might've been if I was, you know, more focused on reading this title. And I think that's probably fair. And, you know, and, and so like, you know, here's just another broadcast message. If you're frustrated with reading a comic book and it's not doing it for you, find something that you enjoy, please. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, um, I have weaved in and out of so many series over the years because I absolutely refuse to just buy a series out of, you know, loyalty or right. um, a sense of having to collect everything and have every issue. I ultimately just, you know, if a creative team comes on that doesn't do it for me, I drop and I try again after a new creative team comes along. Um, and I think that's ultimately a much healthier way to read comics than, you know, basically hate reading something because you yes. feel you have to you ha own yes. every issue. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that I appreciate about our, our show as a whole is, you know, it's really cool to have a, uh, a spider centric show or an X centric show or a Superman centric or a Batman centric, but what happens when it's not great content that you're getting? And that's one of the things that, you know, while we might not have the precision of, you know, focusing on one aspect of nerddom, I appreciate that we can just pivot. If something is crap, we can just go to something else. Exactly. So now we just need to talk about where we're headed. Uh, as of this recording, the first two issues of Spider-Man Beyond have released. And I just have to ask, Chris, what are your thoughts so far? So um, my personal motto going forward in here uh, with this run is in Zeb Wells, I trust. Hellions has been one of the most enjoyable reading experiences of the past few years. If you haven't read Hellions, go read it. It's super fun. It's like, it's not even like Suicide Squad. It's like the worst of the worst, the the F-ups, of you will, of the mutant um, community. And it's just super fun. Like the, just what Zeb Wells can do as a writer. So I, I'm, I hold Zeb in high regard as a writer and as a creator. And then that's not even like the best part is the entire stable of writers that are on the beyond board or whatever um, is like a dream team for me. You know, um, Cody Ziegler is new to me, but uh, I've written, uh, I've read a little bit of his work and, and really, really enjoyed it. I've heard some interviews on podcasts that are really, really enjoyable. Um, so I've, I've done some work familiarizing myself with Cody Ziegler, Kelly Thompson. I will do anything for um, particularly her work in, um, you know, Mr. and Mrs. X, the way that she writes Rogue and Gambit is one of my all-time favorites. And just having um, a female perspective on Spider-Man is going to be refreshing and super something I'm super excited about. And then Saladin Ahmed is one of my favorite writers in the game. The Miles book, I will sing the praises up and down the streets for. And, you know, having him on on a Peter book is can only be, you know, added to the strength. So I'm super excited to where we're going. I've enjoyed the first two issues. Ben Riley is a complicated character. Um, you know, also the Beyond Corporation, which um, has popped up in my Al Ewing read through, um, it is really interesting to see where we go from here. I will totally echo that. Um, I will say I did read the Clone Saga back in the day when it first came out. And although so much of the Clone Saga was objectionable to me, I enjoyed Ben Riley's uh, character tremendously from the word go. I enjoyed his stint as Spidey. Um, I was sad to see him die ultimately. 
I was definitely um, upset with how he uh, was brought back uh, by Dan Slott and how he was used by that rider. I thought that was that was sort of a crime against humanity right there. And so seeing him back in a heroic role, putting a Spider-Man suit back on, we know that this is a temporary situation. Um, I think they've already stated this is going to run for so many months, and that's about it. Um, so just riding the storyline out and seeing what they do with it and what they ultimately decide to do with with Ben Riley, I think that's awesome. I think I'm really going to enjoy this in the long run. Uh, and then we'll circle back around to Peter, no doubt. Um, but as we mentioned in the MCU segment in in you know nerd news, sometimes uh, you know things peter out a little bit. You got to take a break. You got to you know re you know, shift things around a little bit. And that's what they're doing by focusing on Ben for a little while instead of Peter, uh, even though Peter is still going to be present in the book. Um, it reminds me a little bit of what they tried to do, you know, one of Dan Slott's better moments, you know, with Superior Spider-Man. Uh, it's very much temporary. You very much know this isn't going to be a permanent situation, but you can enjoy the ride, uh, enjoy a, a fresh take, and then eventually classic peter parker spider-man is just going to be around the corner so yeah I'm, I'm really enjoying this so far i think the art is cracking i think the writing is very sharp and i'm just very curious where it all is going so i'm loving this yeah i, I neglected to mention uh, i don't know how i did but pat gleason coming on uh, or staying on rather uh, not only as an incredible artist but also doing some some writing work here like i mean like we keep winning so i love i love that uh, any other thoughts on on where we're headed with the Amazing Spider-Man title? Not really, Chris. I'm just just excited to see where we're headed. How about you? Uh, I'm I'm super excited as well. Um, the particularly the last issue, um, really that moment. And full spoilers. Sorry if you haven't read. Just skip forward a few seconds. Just that that handing over of the moniker. That, that permission, if you will, from, from Peter to Ben. And then those side-by-side panels were just gut-wrenching in the best possible way. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. All right, that's it for our post-mortem of Nick Spencer's Amazing Spider-Man run. After we come back from our final break, it's time for Nerd Nightmare. <laughs> Welcome to Go Float Yourself, a podcast about the television show, The 100. We're a brother-sister team here to celebrate the good and roast the bad on one of our favorite sci-fi teen space dramas. Come for the story and the drama, stay for the funny nicknames, the pet conclaves on our Instagram, and of course, the hauntings. Oh yeah, did I mention I'm a literal ghost haunting the pod? That's canon. Find us at Go Float Yourself on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back, and it's once again time for Nerd Nightmare. This week, it is once again time to torture Chris, our newbie to the world of horror, with uh, maybe something a little spicier than last week's Friday the 13th. So, Chris, this week you had to watch 
Insidious. Now, Insidious, of course, is a 2010 horror movie directed by James Wan and written by Lee Winnell uh, and stars Patrick Wilson, Rose Byrne, and Barbara Hershey. It's the first installment in the Insidious franchise. And as a big fan of James Wan, I was, of course, uh, pretty thrilled to see him uh, take on Aquaman. And since you enjoyed Aquaman so much, I thought it might be fun for you to see a movie where James Wan sort of, you know, cut his teeth uh, because he's very well known in uh, the horror world. So, Chris, what is your take on Insidious? Well, first and foremost, it was really weird seeing Ocean Master and Moira McTaggart married. So that was not a couple that I had I'd uh, you know, <laughs> seen together, but um, I, this is going to be really weird. I really enjoyed this movie. Uh, really. It was so well done. And what I appreciate so much about this movie is that the, the scientific approach, um, and this is a testament uh, to James Wan in, in the director's chair of knowing exactly the boiling it down to the, the, the the prime elements of what is scary and then just absolutely flexing that on the screen the jump scares uh, a friend of mine um said be ready for jump scares and holy lord that is absolutely correct uh the first time that i okay so i've already previously said that i watch most of the stuff on my phone because there's no telling when a kid will burst in the room and I don't want to, you know, terrify them. So I watch most of the stuff on my phone and I threw my phone when Darth Maul's little brother shows up behind the grandma's head. Um, <laughs> and so like, yeah, it's legitimately terrifying. And then um, just like the fast motion of like the super creepy smiley faces was, was, was all so deliciously terrifying um also shouts to elise like one of the most captivating interesting intriguing characters and um steve who uh we talked to earlier in this episode said you have to watch the following chapters because uh, elise is one of the coolest characters in horror um uh, so th- that was great to have another person just pile on the horror takes. So it, it was it was a very much a, a tag team effort. Um, and, and Steve's a wrestling fan, so th- they'll appreciate that you know, reference. But um, it, was, it was it was a really complicated you know viewing experience as well because I wanted to kick uh, Josh's ass for the first half of the film, like he was being super deadbeat, especially as a teacher. You know, like you know we we get that and and staying at school until 11 o'clock to grade papers. Okay. You're just ducking out on your responsibilities as a father, you doofus. But then like, you know, the turn to like this, you know, heroic, only you can save your child was really cool to watch. And then full spoilers, that ending where, Oh God, I literally was shaking, but in the best possible way, the ending was just perfection. And, um, I, I may be sounding crazy, but I, I'm checking out chapter two. I am so pleased to hear you say that because uh, one of the things I love about this movie is that it has a really good story. It has the obligatory jump scares, but I think above all else, one of the things that James Wan just uh, shines at when he makes a horror movie is building an atmosphere. Yes. Like his scary movies are just seeped in atmosphere. They have a very, very specific feel from the word go. And uh, I, I don't say, I don't want to say they feel, 
fill you with dread necessarily, but they, the, the, the atmosphere and the tone perfectly sets up the scares. Like you're already kind of a little uncomfortable and you, you kind of know that it's coming and when it hits you, it still hits you hard. So yeah, I'm, I love uh, this one. I love uh, Insidious um, Part 2 as well. I'm a little uh, less um, excited about the um, prequels, Chapter 3 and The Last Key. I think Chapter 3, the first prequel was okay. The Last Key left me a little cold. Um, but man, the first two are, are just a great one-two punch. And uh, the fact that you're checking out too, I think is uh, awesome, Chris. And I, I really want to hear your take when you actually watch it, even if it's not a part of Nerd Nightmare. Um, I And I, I'm, I, I wholeheartedly apologize to Rose Byrne, but she is absolutely magnetic. And she is quickly becoming one of my favorite actresses to follow. The way that she commits to a role is absolutely fascinating. And I was on an emotional roller coaster with her in this film. Like she absolutely was my favorite part of this film like and and she's absolutely one of the most talented individuals i mean like you take this something like this as as spellbinding as this film and then you couple that with like what she did in bridesmaids like in this complete turn into like this goofy comedy turn like i i massive fan of her work and oh man i i I'm super excited to check out too. I never thought I'd be saying that. Yeah, so I, I feel vindicated now for introducing you to the world of horror because we finally found something that you really, really seem to love. All right, so that is our third planned installment for Nerd Nightmare. So if you're listening to this, you as our listeners get to pick the fourth and final installment of Nerd Nightmare, which technically will air in November, but we have that hangover. So what are your thoughts? Um, we will post on social media the ones that we have already viewed for Nerd Nightmare. You tell us your suggestions, what you would like us to see with uh, hashtag Nerd Nightmare. And that's it for another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. As always, if you like what you just heard, please get on your favorite podcasting platform and give us a rating, a review, subscribe so you never miss an episode. Um, you can find us anywhere podcasts are available, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, and of course, our very own website, nerdbyword.com. And as always, hit us up on social media at NerdByWord on Twitter and Instagram or individually at ThatNerdDave, ThatNerdChris. Not so much on Instagram. We don't really do that much. We're, we're not the kings of selfies, Dave. But for our wild and rampant thoughts on comic books and everything under the nerd umbrella, uh, Twitter is where we feast. Oh, absolutely. I have a face made for radio after all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, and as always, stay well and stay nerdy and stay away from the further. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.